Thanks, Hannah. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. We've been here in the past before, so for those we know, welcome again. It's good to be here, and thank you for welcoming us. And for those of you who don't, thanks for having us. My family, Noel and my kids, are over here, minus my oldest. And we live in Tirana, Albania, for the last three years. And we have an Anglican house church that we uh, minister in. That's one of our main roles of being there through counseling and spiritual direction, spiritual formation as well. And I can share a little bit more later with you after the service. But before I forget, we have a prayer magnet out here. You can pick one of those up on your way out. But one of the things that we do there is join with people together and try to like create spaces of hearing from the Lord and listening to the Lord. And that's one of the things that we're going to do together this morning as a brief way of just allowing God's Word to wash over us. And so this practice is an ancient practice called Lectio Divina. It's Latin for divine reading. And usually you'll read this text slowly four or five times and allow several minutes of silence in between to really ask the Lord to speak to you from His Word what He has to say to you. We're going to do a modified version, so I'm going to read this text three times and give you just about 30 seconds of silence in between each reading. And then I'm going to give you some context of why this psalm was written by David, and then a few reflections, okay? So I would invite you just to be still with the Lord, however that's best for you. You can read along Psalm 3 with me. You can close your eyes, but just have a posture of your heart to receive a word or a phrase or something from God that he wants to speak to you through Psalm number 3. This is Psalm 3, a psalm of David. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory in the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, And he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me. O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. O Lord, how many are my foes. 
Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory in the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, And he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me. O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people.
Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. And now may you speak through my voice, your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm number three, how do we get to this point? This is a psalm that David writes when he's on the run, leaving Jerusalem, because his son Absalom has conspired against him for the kingdom. And I think we have to look at the story through 2 Samuel to see some context for why David was at this place. And so David had had a lot of military victories, pretty influential, and his kingdom was at peace. And then he sent some people out to war. Usually the, the time when kings go out to war, David would have gone at this particular time, but he stayed back. And scripture says that it was late in the afternoon, which is a hard time for us, isn't it, sometimes? The coffee's worn off and we just feel a little bit less attuned to maybe the things we need to be attuned to. And so David's walking up on the roof and he sees a beautiful woman bathing and he inquires for her. And he gets word that this is Bathsheba, who's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David tells Joab, who's his military commander, kind of his right-hand man to do whatever David needs to be done. And Joab brings Bathsheba to David. You know this story. She has no say in, what, in, this, in, this, in this time. He exploits her for his own ends, his own means, his own desires, and she becomes pregnant. And now David has a problem on his hands. So he calls Uriah in from the battlefield and gives him wine to drink with the expectation that he will go in and lie with his wife. But Uriah is a man of noble character. And in the middle of this war, he stays outside the threshold of his home two consecutive times and does not go into his wife. I'm imagining David's getting a little stressed about this situation now. So he tells Joab, put Uriah on the front lines. He does, and Uriah's killed. And I wonder if David thinks that all is now well. But at the end of this chapter of 11, 2 Samuel, we read, but the thing that David has done displeased the Lord. And so Nathan the prophet comes and he tells this story about these two men, one who had all these sheep and goats and one who had only one little ewe lamb. The rich man's friend was coming on a visit and instead of taking one of the multitude, he takes the one to sacrifice for a feast together with his friend. David gets so angry and Nathan just says, you're that man. And then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and he says in chapter 12, why have you so despised the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? He goes on to say, because of what you've done, the sword is never going to depart from your house. Because of what you've done, I'm raising up evil within your own family. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And the Lord says, you're forgiven of your sin. You will not die, but the son born to you from Bathsheba will. So we see this context that started here. David exploitation of a woman and murder of her husband. And the reality is now things have been set in motion that can't be undone. So I read this, I, read the, I see the reality of God has separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. When we confess the blood of Jesus has wiped us and washed us as white as snow. However, there are consequences of our actions or inactions, aren't there? And this is a story of consequences. And so we get into the next chapter. We see this played out already. Chapter 13, it's the hardest 
chapter for me, I think, in Scripture to read, especially the father of two daughters. Amnon is David's firstborn son and heir of the kingdom. Amnon sees his half-sister, Tamar, is beautiful. Tamar is the sister of Absalom, one of David's other sons from a different mother. And Amnon lusts after her with such passion that he won't do anything until he can have her. He connives this scheme with some of his friends, and he rapes his sister. News gets back to David and David's anger, but we don't see that David did anything about it. And we don't know why. But Absalom is carrying this hatred toward Amnon, rightfully so. But when justice hasn't happened, we're left with this mess of what's next. Two years go by and Absalom approaches David and said, there's this festival that I want to go to and I want to invite all my brothers to go and I want you to come too. David gives the blessing to Absalom to go with all the brothers, but he stays back. And Absalom says to his friends, when Amnon is drunk with wine, I want you to kill him. And so that happens. So what we already see generationally here, and this is hard for us to hear and to read, because I'm sure we all come from families where there's just generational stuff in our family of origin, that if we don't seek healing and forgiveness, those things carry on generation to generation, do they not? And so we see here, David in Bathsheba is mirrored with Amnon and Tamar. David and Uriah is mirrored with Absalom and Amnon. So you see these, the sword won't depart. Evil I will raise up within your own house. It's real for David. So David gets word back that all of his sons are killed and he goes into grieving and mourning. It's clarified that actually no, only Amnon has been killed by Absalom. The rest of your sons are alive. But David mourns for his firstborn son. And I wonder what's going on in Absalom's heart at this moment. I wonder if there's some kind of justification that he feels like, I took care of what you didn't. And I'm sure he feels this bitterness toward his father that you're mourning after Amnon for what he did. And then because of what Absalom did, he has to go into exile for three years in the town of Geshur. So now we're at five years since Amnon raped his sister and David did nothing about it. And I'm wondering if resentment and bitterness is just continuing to build in Absalom's heart. Maybe he doesn't know what to do. Maybe he felt like I did the only thing I knew to do. And so finally, Absalom sends word by Joab, like, why am I here in Geshur? Let me come to the town of Jerusalem. And so Joab sends a woman to meet with David and it's a ruse. It's, she tricks him into this story that she tells of two sons, it's really of Amnon and Absalom. One has been killed, one is exiled, and David says, bring your son back. It's okay, nothing will happen to him. And then David realizes this is actually Joab's hand is behind this. And he tells the woman, kind of shoot straight with me. She tells him, yes, Joab put me up to this because your son Absalom is gone. And so Joab, David gives word to Absalom by Joab, come back into Jerusalem but you must not come to my house. So David continues to keep Absalom at a distance from him. The father-son relationship has not been repaired at this point. 
So for two years, Absalom lives on his own, on his own in Jerusalem and does not get to see David. Absalom finally has enough of it and by way of burning down Joab's field, gets Joab's attention and he says, why am I here? It'd be better if I was in, back in Geshur. Joab says, okay, I'll talk to David about it. Joab talks to David and David says, invite Absalom to come into my presence. So chapter 14 ends with Absalom on his face before David and David kissing the forehead of his son. And we're tempted to think, is this the beginning of a restoration, of a reconciliation? Is this going to be the end of the sword will not depart from your house? But chapter 15, Absalom's conspiracy. See, in this time, things are brewing in Absalom. We don't know exactly, but we see that he wants the kingdom. We see that Absalom is a really good-looking guy. He's influential. He's sly. And he starts talking to people at the city gate. If I were king, I would do this. David doesn't do this very well. I'm going to do this for you. It sounds a little bit like election year cycles in America, right? Promises made. If I'm president, I will do this. I will do that. I'm not like this guy. This is kind of what Absalom was doing. He's rallying people around him for his cause, which is to then get enough people to overthrow David and be king himself. So we read that after all of this, he gathers all these people and they finally have a critical mass. He enters Jerusalem with all of his people and the people that have come along his side. And David looks around and realizes, I can't stay here. My enemies surround me. I must flee and leave Jerusalem. So into chapter 15, David leaves with his men, those that are still faithful to him. And I wonder if this, this hits us in ways that maybe you've been surrounded by people that have been for you or that have supported you, that have turned away from you or that have left you in some way, that have maybe, like, you felt betrayed by people. I'm imagining this, this is what David is feeling in some level. Betrayal, sadness, grief, loss. It's like, what has happened and he's probably thinking back to what he's done with Bathsheba and Uriah and wondering, what if I did things differently? So this is his state. As people are leaving, there's a man named Ittai the Gittite. And David doesn't know him very well. He's new to the city, but he just is a fate. He wants to follow David and be there for David. And David says, go back to the city of Jerusalem. All will go well with you. It's okay Go back to the king. And David's already using kingly terminology for Absalom, expecting that he's going to lose the kingdom to his son. And this man, Ittai, just says, I won't leave you. I will be with you. I wonder what encouragement that gave to David in the middle of all these people that have abandoned him. It speaks of that word that Ruth gave to Naomi. Wherever you go, I'll go. And maybe there's been people that God's brought into your life that have said, I will stick with you closer than a brother, closer to family. That was Ittai to David. And meanwhile, as we read this, they're leaving Jerusalem in tears. David's barefoot, weeping, making the ascent to the Mount of Olives when he hears that his own advisor, Ahithophel, has also joined Absalom's conspiracy. Just what that must have been like for David, the man maybe he trusted most, his counsel he would seek wisdom from, has now turned his back and is following Absalom as well. The tears, the weeping, the mourning. 
I can't help but think of another king many years later who would make that same ascent to the Mount of Olives whose sweat was like drops of blood falling from his forehead as he cried out to the Father, my God, my God, take this cup from me. Two kings, two ascents in tears seeking the Father. That's the posture of David's heart. And that's the reality of what's happening in Psalm number three. I think we have to read this context of what's going on to better understand these words and sit with them and the reality. See, the Psalms are a window into the heart of the psalmist based on what's going on in their lives. And this is an invitation for us, too, to be people, men and women of the Psalms, to read these words when we don't necessarily have the words to express to God of what's going on in our lives, especially these imprecatory Psalms, these Psalms of lament, these Psalms of, take care of my enemies, Lord, I'm surrounded. What are you doing? The Psalm 44, God, are you asleep? Wake up and help me. See, the Psalms are not necessarily theologically accurate in each moment, in each line of the Psalm. It's the posture of the heart of the psalmist to model to us humanity, to model to us that things aren't always working out very good, and we need words to express that to God, like, what is going on? And when we do that, we allow our hearts and our souls to be remade for him to minister to us, to care for us. And so for David, that's how we can read how many are my foes. That's not just some like theoretical foe. That's like legitimate, my foes are all around me. They've taken over Jerusalem. There's a ton of them. We're a lot smaller. There's nothing we can do. They're rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. Maybe they see the writing on the wall, David, you're done for. And in fact, the next chapter, chapter 16, when they're on the run, there's a man named Shimei. He comes out throwing stones, literally, at David and his men, but also, I think, figuratively. You're no good. You're a man of blood. You know what you've done with Bathsheba and Uriah? I know. I remember that. We all know. I think that's sometimes the voice of the enemy, isn't it, for us? Like, you've done this. Whether you've confessed or not, you're still a man of blood. You've still done those things in secret that you think nobody else knows about. And that's where the Lord comes in and says, no, you are not to live in the shame, in the guilt of your sin once you've confessed. That's the beauty of confession. And so those words that Shimei said were curses upon God, uh, curses on David. And interestingly enough, Several chapters later, Shimei comes before David and says, I, I sinned against you by what I said. But that's this reality. Many are saying there's no salvation. How can it be? And David just says this word, but. But you, O Lord, are a shield. Even though all these people are around me, you are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out, I mourned, I wept. And you answered me, God, from your holy hill. It's this expectation that God will answer and will come to the rescue. And that right there is, I think, what makes David a man after God's own heart. Even in the middle of what he's done, 
He acknowledges, God, I am desperate for you. I can't save myself. That's the gospel, right? I can't do anything without you. You're the lifter of my head. And that trust that David acknowledges and sings about and writes about, I think allows him to lay down at night and then to rise again and attribute that to God. You have sustained me. And to say, I won't be afraid of all these thousands of people that have set themselves against me because you, Lord, are with me. He says, arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, help me. That's a cry of our hearts when we're in similar positions that David's in. David then acknowledges, God, you are the one that takes justice and you take care of my enemies. And I think especially so, these teachings of Jesus that says, love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. We're not to go and take revenge on our enemies, but to allow God as a God of justice to take care of what he will do in his timing. And I think that's what David is saying here. You will do this. And so when many are saying there is no salvation for him in God, David can say in verse eight that salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing on your people. The invitation today, friends, is to be people of the Psalms that take the time to look at the heartbeat here in these 150 songs and for us to identify Psalms of thanksgiving and worship, to sing those when we're in those places. Psalms of lament and grief, to enter into those with the Lord and recognize he meets us in times of our pain and in times of our sorrows. When we're afraid to acknowledge our fears and to speak out what's true even if we don't feel that in our hearts. The Psalms are a window into the souls of God's people. And maybe he's inviting you to write your own psalm for the season that you're in. When Charleston 2015 happened with the shooting at Emmanuel AME Church in downtown, the next day I was at a grief and loss counseling course and six of us got together, three white, three people of color, and we wrote a psalm of lament for Charleston. And it was a not pretty words that we penned, but throughout that psalm of expressing our lament and our pain and our grief, it turned into psalms of trust. God, you are on your throne and we bow before you and we need you. So maybe that's an invitation for you to write your own psalm, to invite the Lord to minister to you. And like David, to let how you're doing be known to the Lord because he knows anyway, but to express that in a way that healing can come. I want to just pray a blessing over you as I end this message. We'd love to talk to you afterwards about some of the things that we do in this vein, in these areas of spiritual formation at our church in Albania and other ministries. But for now, just hear this word of blessing over each of you. Father, we exalt you. We love you. Jesus, we thank you for coming and for taking our nature, for walking in our skin, for experiencing the full gamut of human emotion. Spirit, we thank you that you dwell in us, believe in you. 
May each man, woman, and child here know their sonship and daughtership of the King. May we receive your love. May we come before you in confession and repentance and forgiveness, knowing that that's a beautiful gift that you've offered us to be in relationship with you. That when we do so, you separate our sin from us, you meet with us and you restore us, you heal the broken pieces of our hearts and our lives. And one day, all will be made right again. Until that day comes, as you empower each person here by your spirit to live faithfully and to love sacrificially. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.